Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. This week, I've been in New York City, attending the annual conference of Heterodox Academy, a nonpartisan group of academics and writers who are committed to viewpoint diversity. One of the speakers here at the conference has been none other than Quillette columnist Coleman Hughes, who generated controversy this week when he testified at a United States House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing on Bill H.R. 40, which, if passed, would establish a commission to study the possibility of paying reparations to descendants of slaves. The full transcript of his testimony appears on the Quillette.com website. During a break in conference proceedings, I sat down to speak with Coleman about his opposition to reparations, a stance that was not popular among activists who attended the hearings. What follows are excerpts of that conversation. Coleman, I was actually surprised how brief your testimony was. Uh, what were the parameters they gave you for delivering your, your remarks? I was told that the testimony had to be five minutes. And what I didn't realize is that, like many requirements or expectations with the government, that was a loose one. Most of the other panelists went over five minutes. Some went seven or eight minutes and didn't get cut off. If I had known that, I probably would have written a longer statement. I also expected that there would be order, <laughs> generally, rather than chaos. I read a transcript of your, your remarks. Were there people, like, heckling you and interrupting you? Uh, yeah, I don't know how much you can actually see on the video or hear because only the panelists are mic'd, but in the room where the miking, you can kind of hear everything. There was one point where people were heckling and I had to start a sentence over again because I couldn't hear myself because it was that loud. Okay, this is strange though because I think of subcommittee hearings as usually it's like on C-SPAN 7 or something. And you know I've watched C-SPAN and you see people like asleep in the background. It, it sounds like this was a special kind of, of subcommittee hearing. Uh, were you warned about this? No, I expected it to, like, like I said, I expected it to be a very ordered environment with procedure. It was very loose. Anyone who wanted to come in there could basically come in, which I suppose is a good thing in terms of transparency. But in practice, what that meant was there are organizations in the black community that have been very energetic about the reparations issue for decades. And I think many of them showed up and in a very culturally black way, there's a kind of call and response. It, in the same way that if you go to Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem, the audience generally participates, which is a good thing. I, it enhances the experience. In this context, that ends up creating a somewhat chaotic environment. So for example, when I was leaving the room, there were some people that were yelling the word shame to me over and over again in my face. 
And then my sister was yelling back at them. And we really felt like we just had to leave. I think there's sometimes a sense that it's, it's worse to be an apostate than to be a heretic in, in political circles. Obviously, this is connected in, in, in some way to the fact that, that you are a person of color. Do you think that if somebody had said similar things to what you had said, but they, they look more like me, that they still would have gotten some response like you're describing from the crowd? That's a good question. I do think that the fact that I am a near enemy rather than a far enemy made me receive more hate. For example, Burgess Owens, who was the other person on the panel arguing against reparations, from what I can tell, got much less hate. His position was further to the right than mine was. He believed that the Democratic Party is more or less the main problem facing black people, keeping black people down that it's well understood as the same party that fought the Civil War to preserve slavery. So he was more of the far enemy. I was kind of the near enemy, someone who's only ever voted for Democrats, who endorsed reparations to people who directly lived and experienced Jim Crow, but not their grandchildren, for example. So I think that led me to be attacked more rather than less. You took a policy approach. Like, for instance, I think in the first... 30 seconds or so, you you specifically mentioned the idea of prisons and reforming the criminal justice system. Surely these are ideas that even many of your critics, maybe some of them at least, will agree with you on. Did you get credit from your critics on pointing out issues that have nothing to do with reparations, but if addressed, could help the black community? No, I I think the very fact that I agree with my critics about the degree to which mass incarceration has deranged our criminal justice system that gets me hated more. I think many people want to view their enemies as totally unreasonable. You know, if you're someone who's energetically pro-reparations, you want it to be true that everyone who is against reparations actually doesn't get it, actually really doesn't get it. You want them to be the type of person who thinks there aren't enough people in prison, who thinks that there's no problem with police violence, right? Because if someone shares your concerns on many issues and nevertheless disagrees about reparations, that's more threatening because it means there's a place to stand from which to agree on many uh, of the problems you see with America, but still not see reparations as, an, as a solution. In some of the media coverage of it, there'd be a picture of you and a picture of ta Coates. Is it sort of like going on radio or TV where they tell you, okay, well, the other panelists are going to be X, Y, and Z? Did you know exactly who else would be appearing? Yes, I did. We all received each other's testimonies in advance, although we didn't receive the same version of the testimony that we all gave. Now, in the case of of Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, he, he of course, is broadly pro-reparations in his posture, but he's an interesting example because despite the fact that maybe he's more orthodox than you are on some of these issues, he himself has actually received a lot of pushback from within the black community for for perceived heresies, I guess you could call it. Uh, What was the response uh, to his testimony? In that room, the response to his testimony seemed really positive. But I agree, he's someone who has been criticized by black people on the left as well. It strikes me that there's a kind of envy of him, I think, Like I said, I I think there are many reparations groups who have been exercised about this issue for decades, 
And he wrote that really beautiful piece about reparations in 2014 and kind of put the issue on the map and has kind of become the face of reparations in the national media. And I can understand from the point of view of someone who who had been, say, advocating for that issue, languishing in obscurity for decades, for someone like Coates to to suddenly be seen as the face of it could produce a kind of envy. So I, I think that, that I see much of the the left wing critique of him to be coming from from that contingent of the black intellectual sphere. How much of the case for reparations is rooted analogous movements? following other historical uh, tragedies and genocides, uh, such as the Jewish Holocaust. Does it draw on other historical movements, or is it very specific to the American experience? I think it draws selectively in a way that points out a weakness in the case. So it will say, look at all these other groups that have experienced reparations, that have been paid reparations. Why don't we get it? And then they'll point to examples where direct victims of atrocities like Japanese Americans interned during World War II got reparations and then extrapolate to say, that means someone like me should get reparations. The, the analogy breaks down because I'm not the one who was enslaved. I'm not the one who suffered second-class citizenship. My grandfather did. So it would make sense to give something to him. That would, that would complete the analogy to Japanese Americans in World War II. Secondly, Often they, they will say things like, you know, and this came up in the hearing many times, that slaveholders were compensated, paid reparations for their slaves after the Civil War. And then they will say something else, which is in intention with that, which is that reparations is not about a paycheck. This came up in the hearing over and over again. Reparations is not just a paycheck. It can't be reduced to a paycheck. Anyone who understands it as a paycheck is naively strawmanning our case. And then it's interesting that ta Coates actually at some point pushed back on that. And he said, actually, I think paychecks should be on the table. Everyone's saying paychecks are naive. Actually, paychecks aren't naive. And I respected him for saying that because if the logic of the reparations argument is really sound, then there's no reason why it couldn't be a paycheck. It's just, it, it, I think it exposes their own, in some cases, discomfort. But it is uncomfortable. And I, I know there was a, in recent years in Canada, there have been large payouts made to indigenous survivors of, of what are known as re- residential schools, uh, which in some cases were, were truly brutal environments where uh, indigenous children were required to go, and many of them suffered horribly uh, from the experience. Uh, and many of them are still alive today, and they've received payments. Uh, but when they received those payments, there was this this tension that you're describing where money is seen as grubby in our society. Uh, if, if you do something wrong to a person and say, well, here, let me write you a check, you know, that's, that's seen as, as a sort of tawdry thing. I can see how people who, who believe that they are owed reparations do sincerely believe that the issue, although represented by money because it's the only tool we have to make people whole, that the money itself doesn't capture the moral wrong. And I guess that makes for an awkward discussion to have. It does make for an awkward discussion. And you know what I would say is, yeah, the money can't capture the moral wrong. What could? What could make up for the enslavement of millions of human beings? Nothing. It's a moral horror of such magnitude that it can't be made up by anything. No amount of apologies will fix it. No amount of money. The, the question is, do we just sink ourselves into that infinite abyss of apologies that will never satisfy us? Or do we try to fix the problems as they appear today, 
facing black people? Do we try to fix public schools, healthcare, safer neighborhoods? None of those issues need to be framed as paying black people back for slavery. It's enough that black people are citizens of America, that they are owed safe neighborhoods and a fair criminal justice system, for example. That's my argument. If you look at the economic data in the United States, one difference that stands out that's far more striking than, than the income differential between blacks and whites is their, their net worth, their savings, where it's something like a five to one or in some metropolitan areas, like a 10 to one difference in the net worth of, of white households versus black households. And that has all sorts of knock-on effects because if you don't have a high net worth, maybe you can't get mortgage capital, you can't send your kids to college, you can't afford health care, all these other terrible things happen. Is there an argument to, to be made that says if we could just knock up the net worth of black households, even if it's on a one-time basis as a historical recognition of this, this atrocity, that that would have an effect that it would lead to better health out- outcomes, it would lead to better education outcomes. Do you see that as a legitimate argument? I'm not persuaded that if we injected black American households with more cash, with a one-time large cash donation, that that would fix the problems we see. Because I don't think a lack of cash is the source of those problems. If there were one issue that you really do think that they really should be holding hearings on and focusing on that would pay huge dividends for the black community, what would that issue be? Oh, interesting. Um, I might as well go with what the the Federal Reserve Economic Wellbeing Report found this year, which is the biggest gap of life satisfaction between blacks and whites, although many gaps were big in terms of questions like, are you satisfied with the quality of your housing, the price of your housing, the quality of your neighborhood? On every, On all of these questions, black people are less satisfied than whites. But the biggest was, are you satisfied with the safety of your neighborhood? That's an issue that is, is very hard for people to talk about on the left because it's, it's, it's hard to plausibly blame it on white people, which is where the wheelhouse of rhetoric is on the left. I think in many cases, the problem of the deepest problems caused by growing up in poverty are not, at least in America, are not merely the, the material. It's not that you didn't have enough stuff necessarily growing up or that you didn't have disposable cash. It's often that poverty is correlated with growing up in a neighborhood where you have to learn to become a type of person in order to survive socially that is enormously stressful psychologically and harmful to your prospects in various ways and hardens you, coarsens you. You know, how do we fix that? Obviously, we we have to end the war on drugs, which has created a huge amount of mistrust between black people and the cops. But we also have to be much better at policing violent crime. We need more policing of, of violent crime in cities where murder clearance rates, you know, are sometimes below 30 percent. I was shocked at the the response and the tone and some of the low blows that people administered to you on social media following your appearance. There was one guy who was, he was attacking your music. He was saying, oh, you know, this guy, I, you know, he put his music on SoundCloud and he's a SoundCloud musician. Like, it is true. And then I, I didn't want to get involved. But then I, at one point I actually jumped in and I said, <laughs> I, I said, this guy actually performed in 2016 with Rihanna at the MTV uh, Music Awards. And the guy, one of the guys responded, it's like, 
Ooh, Rihanna. I don't even think you had to do that because what's wrong with being a SoundCloud rapper? It's so interesting to me, like how people become against fun the moment that someone they hate also has fun outside of the, the domain. So if you had asked that guy before he discovered that I had a lot of rap on SoundCloud, do you, do you think that like all SoundCloud rappers are, are shitty? And he, he probably would have been like, no. But now that it's like, are you against hip hop? He probably would have been like, no. But after he discovers that I also rap, then it's suddenly a problem. He suddenly becomes like a cranky old anti-hip hop well, he person. He became like Archie Bunker. He was like, you know, yeah. <laughs> who are all these kids with their Michael Jackson music thinking? Exactly. He, um, <laughs> there was one, one guy who jumped in. I just wanted to warn you as we wrap up who actually like tagged Rihanna. Why would you do that? Like she has so much better shit to do than said, worry about no. my little well, Twitter spats. He said, he said, Rihanna, is this true? And I, As if like he knows her. <laughs> uh, Coleman, congratulations on your appearance. Despite the fact we focused on the criticism, you've actually got a ton of positive feedback and strong performance here at the Heterodox Academy annual conference. Thanks, John. And look forward to seeing you in Quillette in coming weeks. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.